the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. With everything happening in the world of sports, there's no better place to follow the most important storylines than The Athletic. All over the MLB trade deadline, all over it, breaking left and right, in-depth stories, winners and losers, thoughtful analysis from an all-star newsroom. Get the app, follow your favorite teams and sports, get a personalized feed of great content built just for you as the fan. Get 40% off today. Visit theathletic.com slash spot track, S-P-O-T-R-A-C. And we are sponsored today by Dynasty Owner. Do you think you're smarter than the NFL GMs? And are you the best at fantasy football? Dynasty Owner combines both. Build a roster of players using their actual NFL contracts and salaries. Stay under the cap and build a winner for a chance at cash prizes and compete in the chase for the ring. Tell them Trek sent you when you join and you'll get an extra bonus. Visit DynastyOwner.com today and get registered with just nine days before the opening day. Wow, nine days until the NFL. We're going to start with the NFL here today. It kind of came in lumps, but it was a big, big news day. Not so much the uh, the Genevian clownies and those. We did have a Logan Ryan signing, kind of expected with the Giants. It's uh, Boy, it's like a base $5 million, you know, $3.5 million guaranteed. That's a starting player right there for the New York Giants who badly need defensive help. I, I mentioned this before. I wouldn't be surprised if they get into the Jadavian Clowney competition as well here because that price has clearly dropped. Uh, it's a, it's just a bit of a question mark now. I mean, is there a suspension forthcoming from him? What is keeping him out of a uniform right now? Is it COVID plus not enough money? Uh, you know, there are certainly opportunities for him to say no right now. But if he's still looking for $17 million a year, uh, I can't get there. <laughs> I can't get there. So we had some big-time contracts today. Big-time contracts, to be honest. We'll start with the, with the bigger one. Left tackle Taylor Decker. It was originally reported as a six-year, 50 or a $85 million contract. It's not that. It's going to be four new years, $60 million of new money, which sounds about right. That's the going rate for a left tackle right now, unless you're completely elite. But $15 million a year, that's the Deion Dawkins price. That's the DJ Humphreys price. If you're not the top echelon and you're not, you're not sitting on a contender right now, that's pretty much where you're going to be. So good on, uh, good on the Lions getting that done because, look, we've talked about the Lions before. They are an interesting team for a team that's not very interesting. <laughs> um, Matthew Stafford's on a one-year contract for me for all intents and purposes here. I mean, he is a heck of a quarterback. He was he had them on a winning track last year. He was on a an outside MVP candidate run until he was injured. We know he can play football, but does he need to change a pace? And do the Lions need to change a pace? And also, do the Lions need to get cheaper at that position? Because that's certainly the the medicine for a lot of teams right now. So lock in your left tackle. You got yourself a, a really nice running back in, in DeAndre Swift. I think they're gonna lock in Kenny Galladay as the WR one there for a while, and they got Hawkinson. So look, there's weapons. This is sort of the Browns situation. Now, can Matthew Stafford be the quarterback to pull all this together and make it work? And if not, is he out the door next year? And is there a brand new rookie quarterback waiting in the wings? So to me, this was the right move. It's the it's a right price. It's about 32 million or 37 million guaranteed. So really more than half, about 56%. Again, that's the going rate. 56 to 60% of full guarantees. That's about what we're seeing with the majority of these contracts on average in free agency and on average with the extensions we saw this offseason, 46%. So, you know, you had some duds, of course, in free agency, but look, for all intents, the big, big contracts are trending upward in guaranteed money. Good news for the players. What's not the deal is, look, the other contract that signed today was the running back contract. Of course, the Joe Mixon, kind of a no-brainer for the Bengals who have to pay absolutely nobody right now. They franchise tagged AJ Green to keep him in the fold. Joe Burrow's obviously dirt cheap. They released players like Eifert and a bunch of their defense to kind of clear some hay. Some hay. Brought in DJ Reader on a nice free agent contract. Atkins and, and Dunlap are still worth a, a good chunk of change. Other than that, this entire roster is cost controlled. John Ross had his fifth year option decline, so they have complete control of his situation after, after this year, including the situation with AJ Green going forward after the 2020 season. So it's kind of all systems go in terms of rebuilding this team right now in Cincinnati and Mixon was an easy sign. You know, he wasn't looking for top echelon money injuries and a lack of of early production really held his price point back. 
He broke out a little bit last year. He's an exciting fantasy option for a lot of people. 12 million a year is just about right. But here's the part that really matters. We've got the full breakdown now from Ian Rappaport, NFL Network, uh, for the most part. What we don't have is the true guarantees. I'm going to assume, based on the structure that Ian's put out here, that the first two years are fully guaranteed. That's pretty much set in stone. Um, so what that means is two years, $19.3 million fully guaranteed. There are per-game active bonuses. There are workout bonuses. He gets a $10 million signing bonus. This is a pretty decent running back contract. It's not a good one. It's not a great one. Look, it's, it's, not even 10, it's not even guaranteed $10 million over the next two years in terms of the average salary. It, it's likely that he can get to that third year, right? 26 years old. My guess is he'll see $30 million over the next three years. Again, not even $10 million a year when you, when you look at the actual numbers on the site. So can he get to that fourth year of this contract? Can he get to age 27, 2023, you know, when the cap hit jumps over $12 million, which shouldn't be a problem, of course. But that's the only way he gets four years, $40 million over the next four seasons with Cincinnati. I, we're not seeing running backs go four years on contracts. We're just not. They're, they're four-year deals built into two uh, or vice versa, two, you know, two-year contracts that look like four. So my guess is he'll get three years and maybe 30 million out of this, but probably not a lot more than that. It's fine. Cincinnati kind of had, you know, we can do this if we want to. We don't really need to do this right now. He's going to be a free agent, but so is every other running back after 2020, to be honest. Uh, It's such a huge crop and a huge class that the price tag is just going to drop so low. So to wrap it up in a bow, that looks like 12 million a year, but from a structure and guarantee standpoint, my assumption is this is barely three for 30, barely. Um, so fine. Good for Mixon. He got his money. Fantasy owners will be happy unless you're in a salary cap league and then you're pretty pissed off, pissed off that this guy just jacked his AAV up about, you know, $11 million, but good for Mixon. Good for the Bengals that are on the right track, clearly with the draft picks and this kind of a signing. So Taylor Decker's in Joe Mixon's in and Gakwe. Let's talk about it. <laughs> okay. Minnesota gives up a second, which is no, you know, that's no small potato, even though it's a draft of unknowns in 2021, but they give up their second uh, and a conditional, you know, fifth, fourth, third, depending on how good this works out this year in 2022 to bring in a guy that was worth almost 18 million on a franchise tag to Jacksonville. He wouldn't sign that deal there. He goes to Minnesota and it's reduced to 12 million. He takes a $6 million bath just to get out of Jacksonville. I get it. Jacksonville is going the wrong way in terms of production, in terms of team building, in terms of everything. He doesn't want a long-term contract there, so why stay there at all? But $6 million is an awful lot to give up. And Minnesota had all the leverage. They were cap in cap hell at the time. They did not even have the $12 million really to, to fit in there, so they certainly didn't have the $17.8 million to fit in there. So, you know, Minnesota basically had him by the barrel. We'll give up a good draft pick to get you in here. But as part of the agreement, you got to drop this thing down to 12 million for us. And oh, by the way, we can tag you next year if we want to as well. Uh, it's a bad move. It, it's a bad business move for Ngakwe. But he goes to a team that's going to be in the postseason most likely. He still gets a decent chunk of change in $12 million. Um, you know, who knows if there's incentives built under there. Those kind of things can happen uh, on the one-year tag here. We'll see. We'll see what happens in 2020 then, and then obviously going forward for Ngakwe. But getting out of Jacksonville was, of course, the, <laughs> the exhibit A. That was, that was job number one for Yannick Ngakwe. So those are the big moves that happened over the past couple of days here. And I don't think we're done because, oh, by the way, Josina Anderson drops the bomb today that the Saints are actively trying to trade Alvin Kamara. They are taking phone calls. They obviously want a first-round pick. Alvin Kamara is on a $2 million salary this year in the final year of his contract, and he's worth a heck of a lot more. There's not much more to be said said about that. He's a dynamic playmaker. He catches passes. He is the closest thing to Le'Veon Bell that we've had in the the past two, three years. Le'Veon Bell held out for basically the whole year, was, you know, pushed out of a Pittsburgh situation that he basically put pride himself out of. Still got himself over $13 million a year from the Jets, who probably regret that deal right now, but that's about where we are right now. Right? We just saw Mixon get 12. The Elvin Cook's in the 12, 12.5 range, if I had to guess. Derrick Henry's in the 12.5 million range, of course. 
and then you've got Zeke at 15 and McCaffrey at 16. So those are kind of your leaders in the clubhouse right now. And oh, by the way, David Johnson's still at 13 million in the, in his last leg of that contract with Houston now. So look, if you can catch 70 passes, if you can still rush for a thousand yards, Kamara has that kind of potential. I'm not sure he has it in the Saints offense because there's so many miles to feed, but he's dynamic. He scores touchdowns for this team. He does everything right for this team. So can this team pay him? Let's talk about it because <laughs> I think in any normal circumstance, you know, with a cap that's been rising eight to 10 million every single year, even though he's a running back, I just mentioned all the reasons he's more than a running back though. He's touch scores touchdowns where generally tight ends score those kind of touchdowns. He catches passes where your wide receiver two is generally catching those passes. He is a step above in a lot of places. So I don't think many teams would gawk at signing a player like Elvin Kamara. And the going rate, if, if McCaffrey's at 16 and Mixon's at 12, you know, split the bill. That's where we have to put him right now. We split the bill. Yes, he, you know, if he goes somewhere else, that new team, probably with a better cap situation going forward, might have to, might have to bend and break for 16 million plus. They might have to go to McCaffrey's number because, you know, in a different offense, he might have a bigger role and with more cap space available, there's less leverage for a team to say, no, no, we got to pinch this down a bit. But my, my, the way I, I look at the current situation in New Orleans is he pro- they probably can't go lower than $14 million, and $14.5 million is probably the high. It probably doesn't get to $15 million, the Ezekiel Elliott deal, um, just because of where he started. He's not the, you know, the number four overall pick, and he doesn't have the ceiling. I don't believe that Ezekiel Elliott does. Zeke's a bit, uh, just a tad step above in terms of what he can do and what we've seen Alvin Kamara do to date. So fourteen and a half million if he stays. That's that's the long and short of what I'm saying. Why won't he stay? Well, I, first of all, I think he will stay, but it's not going to be easy. <laughs> all right, the COVID situation, the revenue situation. This is going to be a salary cap drop, even though I, I've clamored for it not to happen. I just don't see a path where we come back to one ninety eight point two. That's where we are now in a, in a league salary cap. Uh, if I had to guess, I think this thing drops down to 190, hopefully not below that. But, you know, they've said it, it could go as low as 175. So on the site right now, we've got it at 175 for next year. If you look at the Saints in 2021 on spot track right now, they have 53 players under contract and they, <laughs> they are 78 million in the red right now in terms of that $175 million projected salary cap. So they certainly need some help from the league in making sure it doesn't drop that low. And then what happens? Then do you redo Cameron Jordan's deal to get him lower than the 18.9 million he's at? You know, what do you do with Michael Thomas? Do you have to restructure him? Probably. What do you do with Taysom Hill, who has $11 million of dead cap next year against the $16 million cap hit? Uh, do we even understand that contract? I'm not sure we do. <laughs> Uh, they, they better use the heck out of him in 2020 is the way I'm looking at it. Because if he is not the heir apparent, if Jameis Winston really has come in and taken over this locker room and he is going to be signed as the heir apparent to Drew Brees at some point, then what did they just do? Did they just give a tight end this much money? A, a backup tight end? I mean, Taysom Hill's not going to be on, in, in every snap. He's not going to be even close to every offensive snap. So I hope there's a bigger plan in 2020 for Hill. Otherwise, I, I just don't understand it. Um, and oh, by the way, I don't understand it for Taysom Hill either because he had an opportunity to go and find himself a starting quarterback job somewhere else. If that's the end goal, you know, don't, don't lock yourself into this. Although, who can blame him when this kind of money is being thrown at him? But the, yes, Taysom Hill has, has a $16.1 million cap hit for the Saints next year, and it's not going to be that easy to get out of it. <laughs> so what, what is the plan for that? Do they punt on Emmanuel Sanders after a year? Probably. That's probably one of the losses here because they saved themselves six million right off the bat doing that, uh, and even more on a on a post June first. So it's possible that happens. That it's a one and done for Emmanuel Sanders. Latavius Murray most likely out the door. You know, a couple million to be saved there. And then we get to Drew Brees, and I kind of teed this up on purpose with the Taysom Hill and the Jameis Winston discussion because look, there's something about Drew Brees' contract 
that doesn't exist in Tom Brady's contract. And that's a full guarantee in year two. Drew Brees took 25 million guaranteed this year and there's 25 million available to him next year, but it is not yet fully guaranteed. Okay. Um, it will void after 2021 automatically and there'll be 11 and a half million of dead cap if they do that. But there's a world and maybe a maybe a very clear picture where Drew Brees is not on the Saints next year. And whether that's his choice or the Saints choice at 42 years old, I think there may be a coming to Jesus moment here because if the cap drops like we think it's going to and Drew Brees is at 36.15 million, I don't think an extension's in, in the cards. I mean, it's possible that they extend him to lower that cap hit. They certainly could do that to spread the dead cap out, you know, like it is now. But I'm just not sure. Uh, I'm just not sure. You know, there's 11.5 million of dead cap no matter what they do. So you start there with 2021. I don't know if you can let that $25 million salary guarantee. I, I just don't. I, even if he has an unbelievable year, you know, even if they, they get themselves as close as usual, NFC championship game, something like that. I don't think they're Super Bowl contenders, but I could be wrong. Maybe not without Elvin Kamara, certainly. But I think there's a very, very good chance that when we start to talk about cap casualties for 2021, and especially this winter, you know, I'll be ramping up that article nice and early because the more we, the more sniffs we get as to what that league cap might be next year, the more damaging it's going to become in March when teams have to react. And I'm, I'm looking at the Saints right now and how, how tough a situation they are in with any kind of reduced salary cap. And I'm looking at the top of that list. And that top of that list is Drew Brees. And Drew Brees and 36 million at age 42 just doesn't work for me. So <laughs> I hope that Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston and those kind of moves were a prelude, a prelude to we're going to have to move on from Drew Brees after this because otherwise they probably get that full and guarantee in the second year in terms of Brees and his camp. They didn't. It's hanging out there right now. 2021 is hanging in the balance and it's not looking good based on everything we know from the financial situation. So that's my take on the Saints. Is, are they going to trade him? I'm not going to give you a hot take. I have no idea. All right. It's Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern here. Um, I'm not going to give you the hot take of where he might go. Everybody wants Elvin Kamara. He's a heck of a player. He changes every team. And even if you think you have a rookie that's, you know, of his quality, Kamara has playoff experience. He has experience with a, a gigantic organization. Um, you know, a Sean Payton run offense. He, it's kind of a dream scenario for another team to get a player like this. Now there's baggage, there's injuries, there's things like that, of course. And he's not 22 years old anymore. But you want to bring a guy like this who is this dynamic, this versatile, and has the knowledge and experience that he's taken. I mean, that, that puts him above any rookie in the league right now. It's just, that's just a fact. And I know there's some great ones out there, but every team's in on Kamara. <clears throat> is every team going to give up a first-round pick for Kamara? I'll be very interested to see if any team gives up a first-round pick. Because if you're not using a first-round pick to draft a running back, why are you giving up a first-round pick to acquire a running back that you then have to turn and pay $15 million a year? That would baffle me, all right? I understand Leonard Fournette being released out of $4 million, way more than I would understand trading a first-round pick for the right to pay Alvin Kamara. So that's where I'll give you my hot take. I'm just not sure we can get to that. Now, somebody can always step up. It only takes one team. It only takes one. It takes one team to pay in $16 million. It takes one team to give, him a first round, you know, give up a first-round pick for him. We shall see. That's all I'm saying. Um, it's interesting as hell that we're nine days away and Dalvin Cook might hold out, and Leonard Fournette just cleared waivers, and <laughs> Joe Mixon got a fair money value deal from Cincinnati, and now Alvin Kamara's on the trade block. What else could you want with nine days to go in the most weird 2020, you know, the most crazy sports year ever? How else can I say it? All right, we're going to bring in Paul Hamakitis, our good buddy from ESPN. It's time to talk a little baseball. We are sponsored today by Hit Parade. Have you ever wanted a shot at getting a $12,000 Michael Jordan rookie card or a $1,600 Tom Brady autographed helmet for just a fraction of those prices? Hit Parade is the premier authentic autographed sports memorabilia mystery box manufacturer in the United States. Take a shot at getting an autographed item from the biggest name in sports. Get your box today at Hit Parade's exclusive online provider, dacardworld.com. That's dacardworld.com. No one has more hits than Hit Parade. 
Thrilled to be joined on the Hip Parade Hotline by our friend of the show, Paul Hembakitis. Hembo, welcome back, man. How you doing? What's up? It's good to hear your voice. You know, this week, ESPN, we're, we're, we're counting down the days till kickoff. We're talking about <laughs> Dak Prescott and Patrick Mahomes. And I needed a little bit of a break. So you're providing my therapy tonight to be able to talk some baseball. So I appreciate you doing me a solid. I'm never going to say no to a baseball conversation ever, <laughs> ever. <laughs> Especially this one. This Were you surprised? This was pretty darn good of a, a little trade deadline here, right? It was. You know, when when I talked to Buster a couple of months ago about what the trade deadline would look like, it was my impression that teams would go crazy because it was going to be a buyer's market. You're going to have twice as many buyers mm. as you normally would. But most of the industry insiders were saying the opposite. Well, as it turns out, teams were aggressive. They're recognizing an opportunity, especially some of these teams with these you know long-suffering fan bases to improve their clubs and position themselves as best they possibly can for this stretch run. This this piece of metal, as Rob Manfred will call it, will count just the same <laughs> as, you know, everyone else, you know, you know, dating back 120 years. So um, I, I, I really do understand where some of these clubs are coming from. And it was delightful to see as a fan of the sport, because at, at, at this point, it seems like fans are just as interested in the the, the, the movement and the, and the transactions as they are oh. the games themselves. So that, that's what made yesterday really fun. You nailed it. It's been a it's been a black hole with baseball for a while that. They have this kind of ghost free agency in December that nobody really knows when it even starts. We just kind of hearing about names being moved around. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no show put on a show like these other leagues do. NFL does, does a six month free agency show. I mean, it's ridiculous uh, how well produced it can be and and how much just, yeah, you're right. Fan experience it becomes Uh, two questions on that before I get into some of these uh, deeper topics is the, obviously the 16 team playoff is aided that trade deadline, right? There were more teams involved. There were way less sellers uh, because more teams think they're in. And, you know, a couple of teams that we we weren't weren't planning on it were really going all in. I mean, all in Toronto and San Diego, of course. Um, There's no chance this stays, right? Long term? I think that that I would say there's a, a, it's much less, uh, it's much less likely than not that we don't do this again. Like we're not going to play we're not going to play 162 games just to do what the NBA and the NHL does. I think one thing that Rob Manfred likes is the fact that baseball's uh, postseason is somewhat exclusive. And obviously that's in part due to the weather. Now I'm actually one who does, who is open to the conversation as it relates to playoff expansion. Um, but the way that we're doing it this year is obviously not something that we want over a course, over the course of a full season, but it does make a whole lot of sense. Now, one theory that people had two months ago was that this sort of sprint would really energize people and, and, and jack up the TV ratings and all that stuff. And I think what we've learned is that's that's not quite happening. So I, I read a good column yesterday um, by Andy McCullough in The Athletic who was suggesting that September baseball this year is meaningless because of the size of the playoff pool. I think he's way out ahead of his skis there. I think in three weeks people are going to really care what's happening here just like they would in a normal season. But I think it's very unlikely that we'll see 16 teams in the playoffs next year should we play 162 games. Yeah, and we've talked about it a little bit, and not to get too deep, but it's a pretty regional sport now. You know what I mean? I mean, you you cheer for your home team. There's not too I mean, you know, there's not too many people on the East Coast cheering for Mike Trout right now, unfortunately. So the more the merrier, right? The more small little markets we can get engaged in September, I think the better. I'm I'm not super big on 16 teams all the time. But I do think there's probably room for a little bit of expansion because of what we're talking about here. You have to generate more interest. You just have to do it. And there's no question that that the 16 teams being available for the postseason led to a great trade deadline. Not like it wasn't superstars moving and it wasn't even top 100 prospects moving. And, And that's my other question here. Teams didn't have to give up too much this week, did they? It didn't seem like there were many Uber prospects traded. I think I'll get into this a little bit later, but I think that's one of the big reasons why some of the big fish uh, weren't traded. But I, I totally understand why. Like when you're, if you're a seller right now, obviously it all depends individually uh, from a contractual standpoint. But you're you're buying you're buying one month plus the playoffs. So the amount of just the amount of raw games, the amount of season that you can impact is 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 less than normal. So I, I guess I'm not surprised when when teams, when buyers saw that, you know what, I can get what I want or close to it for 80 cents on the dollar. Heck, let's go all in. Let's just do this thing. And I, I actually think that in a few years, we'll see the ripple effects with some of these clubs that were willing just to stockpile assets. I guess maybe it shouldn't have surprised us coming in. It's just so contrary to everything we were told up to about a week ago. 
Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, I mean, are you good with Boston? We talked about it the last time you were on the show that Boston was going to do this, and we thought they might even rip the Band-Aid off even more because of the luxury tax and all those sorts of things. But, uh, I mean, they went on Twitter, basically, Paul, and said, you know, mission accomplished. Literally. They posted, you know, we are here to reset. We are financially resetting. We are tanking. They, they basically posted it. So, I mean, are you good with this? That was bizarre, to say the <laughs> least. Uh, I mean, I, if I were a fan of the Boston Red Sox today, I would not be good with this because – I understand like the systematic approach that, that some teams have to take to rebuild. But if I'm the Red Sox, my biggest rival is the Yankees, and they don't have to do this. The Red Sox have built it up and torn it down seemingly five times in the last 20 years. Now, they've, they've won World Series and they've produced good results, but now without those uh, very, very low sort of valleys in between, the Red Sox are a team that financially should never have, should never have to do this. Now, that's why they brought in Bloom to run their club, but I don't think that I, what I think he's probably underestimating is that fan base is going to become enraged if this thing doesn't happen quickly. Like if they don't start seeing the fruits, this is not going to be like with the Sixers where like I'm a Philly guy, you know, that the trust, the process thing sort of became like this, you know, this sort of cult following there. And it almost became more interesting than the games themselves. That's not going to be the case in Boston. They love their baseball. They're not interested in, in seeing their club lose a hundred games a season or you know, the way that the Astros do. They, they just, they spend too much money. They have too many resources, and they and they just don't have the kind of patience. I, I'd be stunned if if he can pull this off and and do it for more than a year or two. I agree. Yeah. All right. So the Red Sox basically sold. So did Cleveland in a, in a way, right? I mean, what a bizarre story leading up to all this, of course, with the COVID situation. But Mike Clevenger's out the door. There were hints of this happening before the season, anyway. And uh, his compadre Corey Kluber did leave. Are you shocked by the move? Are you shocked by the destination? What do you think about Cleveland here? Um, I think I would best describe Mike Clevenger as a distressed asset at, 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 you know, as, as of this time, two days ago for the Indians. It just didn't seem to me like there was a future for him there the same way that it didn't seem to me that there was a future for Trevor Bauer there after he chucked the baseball over the batter's eye in Kansas City. Like that, like it's, it seems like that would just sort of like the clean break here the situation there with, with he and Zach Plesak as it related to the, to, you know, to the, you know, so essentially like leaving, leaving the hotel, like it was summer camp. So um, he seemed to me like an, a, a distressed asset, but I do want to throw a few numbers your way and see how you react. So in fact, the 2019 trade deadline, and like you mentioned, they moved Kluber, they moved Clevenger and they moved Bauer. And during that span of time, since the trade deadline last year, Cleveland starters have produced 12 and a half wins above replacement. That is most in the majors. Now, Shane Bieber is, you know, sort of the poster child of this player development machine that drafts and develops pitchers domestically better than any in the sport. And by my count, Cleveland received 12 players as part of those trades involving those three pitchers. And for some teams, I would describe those as lottery tickets, I guess. But given Cleveland's track record, I would be willing to bet that a few of those prospects become big league regulars. I, I have a, uh, a good friend who's a, a rabid Indians fan who was like, you know, what? I'm just going to. I'm going to trust the scouts and hope that these that these Padres prospects are close to as good as advertised, and that you know what, what San Diego was doing there is going to manifest itself in this organization. And I said, "You got it all wrong, man. This is about the Indians' player dev people. They're the best in the sport, and it's amazing to me that a team in first place can trade a pitcher with frontline stuff and still project as a favorite in their division. And that's still how I see this club today. There's no question. I'm, I'm a I'm a big fan. I follow them closely. And it's, it's just year after year, there's another arm coming up into the pipeline that looks and smells and feels like the last one. It, it's, it's unbelievable. You're right. It is the development. It is the minor league system. It is something happening. It's something they're putting in the water there because these guys are just pumping out so much efficiency on an annual basis. It's keeping that entire franchise alive because a lot and of their hitters yes. are streaky. Mm -hmm. You know, Jose Ramirez, Frankie Lindor, they generally don't get started till May. It's just kind of how they operate. So this, this starting rotation has been their lifeline and it looks like Bieber's just the next iteration of that. So yeah, you can move a guy like Clevenger for a gigantic return. Not, not, you know, not huge prospects as we mentioned, but you're right. There's going to be one of those, one or two of those players that are going to be big league ready soon. And we're going to be talking about them as the next big Cleveland Indians position players. The, right? one, the one point that I would add to yours is I don't think there's any team in baseball that, that views and uses service time hmm. as currency better than the Indians do. So like, obviously Mike Clevenger is a frontline pitcher when healthy. Um, and 
what like that's like, I I see why it's tough to stomach this if you're a fan of the club today. But given the player development machine, like you said, and given the fact that you know with these with these twelve players you got back in return over these over these three trades, you're you're looking at something like forty to fifty years of big league service. Now, obviously, these guys won't all hit, and we know that. But like like I like I mentioned, I used I used the term lottery ticket, like. Cleveland understands the process that, like, you ha- once you have these guys in your system and you can indoctrinate them to, in, into you, what the for- your formula and what you do and the way that you build these players up, that is valuable currency. Like, I think I think they do as good a job as anybody, given the fact that they just can't spend big created dollars and using service time as currency and and trusting their player development process. And they do that, like I said, better than anything in the sport. And, and they'll take this haul and keep one or two of them and develop a few a few more and use those as trade assets for the next big pull because they they, they, they go in waves every three or four years they'll pull in one big player right and can they, they've had their their pulls where they they decide it's, it's time to go but and oh by the way we're talking about them like they've traded away their last the last piece of their puzzle uh they're tied for first place so you at know. worst at worst right now yeah this is the third best club in the american league yeah. I mean, they're out their outfield is dreadful but those guys can go get it they have a formula that works they pitch they, they obviously utilize their their big ballpark in the american league they, they they just have this right like their equation works for them so well and and to see to see to see teams move big league like present big league talent around during at, at the deadline when you're trying to win is so rare and they didn't even get much present day value in return. I guess the true, I guess the true worth of their player development machine will be uh, manifested. Can Austin Hedges hit 200? If Austin Hedges <laughs> can hit 200 there, they, they need they need to put Antonetti in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but look, look, they won without Clevenger. They, they sent they, him they down. Uh, they put him on the in the quarantine list, and then they sent him down to the minors until they figured out what to do with them, and they still won. You know basically you know they went 12 and 7 basically in the last stretch that's good ball those guys this 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 team was the best record in the american league since harry francona became their manager like this is we should we should not be surprised by any of this you know and it's also uh, i think somewhat refreshing all offseason we talked about whether or not they would move francisco lindor and whether or not it made sense and i always said no you don't trade someone who can give you a chance to win a World Series now. And that's where this club is. You and I talked like a month, month and a half ago. And the, and the point that I made then was if you have frontline talent, both uh, both um, on the mound and in your lineup during a, short, short, uh, during a shortened season like this one, you're going to be provided an advantage more so than you normally would because over the course of 60 games, that frontline stuff can play up. And look, like, look how – impactful Shane Bieber has been like that. That is a, that is an average baseball team that when he pitches is the best in baseball. And that's in and of itself enough to win you a division this year. I love it. But you mean, you mentioned it. What's happening with Lindor, man, he's arbitration three next year, then free agency after that. Do they trade him prior to next year or do they let this thing run out and get to the deadline? What do you think? I think that they'll keep him so long as they don't feel like they're going to receive a hundred cents on the dollar. And that's, that's probably the way to go. Like you have a good team that can win right now. Like in my judgment, you do what the nationals did with Bryce Harper. Like you just run this thing out. You accept that you're, you know, you're, you're not going to ever, you know, recoup the value that he provided you, but six years of Francisco Lindor is the value. And unless you're in a position where you're just totally out of it, you know, you know, 11 months from now, then I, I suppose the decision could be made for you. But we've also seen in recent years that players like, uh, I'll, I'll use I'll use Manny Machado as my example. You just don't you just don't get that kind of return for two months of of impact on a pennant. You just don't like the, the time to move people is is now. If if you were if you were uh, in the end as it relates to Lindor, the time to move him is is now. That's why I think it was such a big mistake for the Rangers. I'll talk about this later. That they didn't move Lance Lynn because when you have when you have someone that can impact two pennant races. They become much more valuable than one, and teams just aren't willing to trade these mega prospects anymore under almost any circumstances. So along those lines of thinking then, did Boston screw up in trading Mookie bets, or was trading Mookie to get David Price off your payroll good enough for them? Um, I, I would say that my, my opinion is that Mookie Betts was at, has actually become somewhat overrated and overpaid, but it's hard. To, it's really, really hard to argue now with with, with the results. It, it became like there is more going on there than we know. Like I just, I just, I'm, I'm an egghead that dials into the numbers. Like but we're talking about a player right now who produces a, about as much value on a you know per season basis as 
you know, like we're talking about like the top 10 players of all time. Like he's, he's like an eight to nine win player for 162 games. So the value is there. You don't trade that guy ever, but I suppose if you know for certain that you're not going to be able to keep him long-term and you know, you're not trying to win in 2020, which that, that decision was made as soon as they hired Heim Bloom, then I suppose it makes sense. The, the, the David Price, you know, the David Price departure obviously helps their books. But again, this is a, this is a franchise that shouldn't have to, they should have to beg, you know, beg teams to take money, you know, away from them. I mean, these guys own Liverpool. Like, I, I it's, it just seems, a bit, <laughs> seems very odd to me that we, we're we're ta- even talking about the Red Sox like this. And considering that, it's even more odd to me that they didn't just literally give away everybody who was uh, remotely, you know, worth their salt this deadline. But I suppose they, uh, I, I suppose they still have uh, <laughs> some morals. Yeah, yeah, interesting, very interesting. Let's switch to the NL East. You mentioned the Phillies. Uh, you know, not too much movement in the NL East in terms of the trade deadline, but it's a heck of a division right now heading into September. What are we, what are we thinking about with this division? Okay, so what I have done, what I'm going to spring on you is uh, my favorite stat of the day on each of these teams, uh, given where they stand with a month to go. Obviously, like you said, some were really active, some were not. And I want you just to react to the stat that I provide you. And in doing so, I think I'll get a, a pretty good lean as to where you stand on each of these clubs. I'll start with the Braves. I'll just I'll just sort of go in order here. But by opponent record, the Braves own the easiest remaining schedule in the majors. Future opponents own a win percentage of four fourteen. So my question to you would be: the stat models make this incredibly obvious and clear. But what per, uh, percent chance would you apply to the Braves in winning the National League East? Because all the stat models say at least eighty percent. Yeah, I would have said eighty. Okay, okay. That 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 number. Feels right to me as well. When you, I mean, they're they're getting nothing. Max Fried's won eight games, and all of their other starters have won like one. Like we're talking about, like he is he is as important to that club as anybody. It yes. stunned me that they didn't that they didn't trade for a pitcher. Did you feel the same way? I thought for sure that's where Clevenger was going. I said it on my show Monday, I, like a fool, like an hour before San Diego acquired him. I said this is Got this it. is the likely destination for Mike Clevenger because of term, because this team is ready to win for the next three to four years, not just right now. Uh, yeah. It made sense. I was shocked they didn't do anything, anything. Robbie Ray, something, right? That was. It was curious to me, but I suppose they have the same data that we that, that we do. Like they have, they have the easiest lineup here the last um, month of the season as it relates to their schedule, and they're going to score some runs. So I, I, I understand the way that they're thinking here because once they get to the playoffs, this is a bullpen that's rebuilt. Yeah. They did so um, through free agency in large part, as you know. So they're a fascinating test case. But I'm with you. They didn't have to do anything for me to still consider them the favorite. All right, my, my, my next team for you is the Marlins, and that's a club whose outfield owns an OPS of 627. It's third lowest in the majors. So my question to you would be, is, is the addition of Starling Marte elevate that lineup enough to make them a legit contender, or are you, are you still not buying the Marlins? You know, you, I know you know that I'm a Mets fan, and I have been watching this Marlins team way too much this year because the Mets have seemingly played them every third day somehow. They are sneaky stubborn. Uh, they've got <laughs> they've got a couple of bats that we've seen for a couple of years. I mean, this I mean Brian Anderson can hit, Garrett Cooper can hit. The, there are some real bats on this team, and if Marte can be a legitimate two, number two batter, which I think that's where they're going to put him, yeah. he's, he's going to take that Starling Castro spot from a couple of years ago that was really effective for a while there. And you bring back, you know, Lewin Diaz in, in this, and, and I, yeah. They're going to be they're going to be more effective now, I believe, if they can continue to pitch. If they can pitch, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I can't believe we're having this conversation. They are the beginning, first week of September. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to side I'm going to side on the other side of the fence. I'm going to say that the Marlins sort of implode here in September because of the lack of uh, quality of that roster, top to bottom. I just yes, they're. I think they're playing out of their mind. It's not like their their peripherals would suggest they're getting really lucky, but I just think it's going to be very difficult for them given the construction of the roster, the lack of quality top to bottom, and the lack of guys that have ever done it before, right. which I do think probably in some sense um, is a thing as, as, as much as, as a stat, you know, guy like me hates to admit it. But I'm a, I'm a Phillies fan, and like you said, like you watch the Marlins play, like their numbers don't jump out, but the Phillies have lost to the Marlins approximately 100 times in the last two years. And, <laughs> and, and I can't quite tell you why maybe they're doing something there culturally um that that works and i think there is some value in that but ultimately like it's you know they're a 500 club now i would definitely think the under uh if you ask me where they'll be at the end of september 
Okay, fair enough. Right. I hope so. The Phil- <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, no kidding. Next in line for you are the Phillies. The Phillies have lost eight games this season in which they led by multiple runs of the most such losses in the majors. Now, they acquired two relievers from Boston last week. Mm-hmm. They acquired David Phelps from Milwaukee before the deadline. Is that is that bullpen a, a, a flesh wound, if you will, or a fatal flaw for this club? I, I've always liked this club more than they produced. I think they've got the right lineup. I think they have three legitimate starting pitchers now, finally, maybe even a fourth uh, that just hasn't clicked right now. I, I like Workman. I, I like what I've seen out of him. So I think if he if he becomes the closer now going forward and you've got a setup situation with Phelps and, and Hector Neris, uh, and oh, by the way, you know, Blake Parker, Tommy Hunter, these guys, these, they've all got experience going up and down that, that the back of that, uh, that bullpen. They are built for the postseason, in my opinion. All, everything about them, including the Harper situation, uh, they are built for long term. So if they can hang on and get in, I would give them a fighting chance for sure. Got it. Okay. Well, that, um, it, it's, I think I'm from Philadelphia, so I'm naturally extremely pessimistic. You know that already. So uh, th- that being said, I'm, I'm not sure that other than the Dodgers, there's a lineup top to bottom that I favor more than, than the Phillies in the National League. I mean, Harper and Real Muto might be the best 3-4 combo in the sport. Uh, Andrew McCutcheon has come on lately. Mm-hmm. Reese Hoskins has remembered how to hit for power again. The, the Phillies are going to score. They're going to average five and a half runs a game. And the front of the rotation right now is is working. Aaron Nola is shoving. Zach Wheeler is, is, is throwing really well. I think the two keys for the Phillies the, the, the last month of the season are going to be the kids, Alec Bohm and Spencer Howard. Right. Those are the kinds of players that I think down the stretch here can make a difference for teams, these sort of young emerging players. Now that they have their uh, feet wet a little bit, the, the, we know the talent's there. And we, like we've talked about in the past, you and me, the league won't have enough time to sort of adjust back if they do show early success. Now, all that being said, the only thing that matters really is can they hold leads in that case. And like the three uh, relievers they've acquired over the last week are the only three reliable relievers. Like if the Phillies had acquired a jugs machine, they would use him in the bullpen. Like that's (laughs) watch this club every night is excruciating, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of with you. Like if this is a legitimate American league lineup and, and they're good up and down. So that that's going to go a long way for, for this. The pitching staff would have to implode royally for the Phillies to miss the playoffs. The Didi signing was underrated the second it happened. It was un, it's undervalued, by the way. I think he got less money than he could have got somewhere else. And I haven't seen too much of the Phillies to see to see how he's playing defensively. I imagine it's as good as ever. But if he's batting fifth on the on this Phillies lineup, something's going right. Is that correct? Yeah, and he's a perfect fit for that ballpark. He can still pick it at shortstop uh, adequately. Uh, I'm firmly of the opinion that defense doesn't matter at all anymore because of how much swinginess there is in the game. Yeah. So I think we often overrate that. Um, I, I suppose it depends on how you choose to utilize your pitching staff. But as a general rule, it's not nearly as important as as I think much of a, we many of us sort of think. But yeah, D.D. Gregorius has been a, a godsend for the Phillies. And, you know, there's there are very few holes in that lineup up and down. Even Scott Kingery has played somewhat well lately so it's 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 nice when you can fill out a lineup card and you if you're playing an american league club and and feel pretty decent about who's sitting eighth and ninth you there just aren't that many teams that can say that uh but the phillies can okay give me my next team for you is your mets the mets starters not named jacob Degrom this season (laughs) they own a 5.98 era as i'm sure you've seen on many sny uh broadcasts (laughs) they've averaged 13 outs per start, um, which if you're doing math at home is less than half of the game. Um, so my question to you is, is their lineup, is their lineup after adding Robin Chirinos and Todd Frazier, you think good enough to carry this pitching staff that has been just utterly dreadful, as, uh, at least as it relates to the rotation? All right, let me put it this way. I'm still hoping the Todd Frazier move is a prank and that this isn't real life because <laughs> did, what did we just do? What, well, like, what did the Mets just do? At the you know essentially at the last hour here at 4 p.m. at the trade deadline I still don't understand it no no the lineup isn't good enough um, Seth Lugo is the second best starter in this rotation and he's the sixth <laughs> starter in this rotation um, you know for me to sit here and think that the signing of Michael Waka and Rick Porcello before the season was going to work uh, at all that was supposed to be they were supposed to compete for the fifth job. Uh, right. You know, we're talking about a team that should have Marcus Stroman and doesn't and should have Noah Syndergaard and doesn't. So uh, this is a microcosm of what this team should be. And there's really no, I don't think there's any lineup, even that Dodgers lineup you talked about that could carry this rotation right now. 
<laughs> it seems it, it seems like uh, you and I are sort of cut from the same cloth here. <laughs> I was surprised in doing my research today just how favorably the Mets lineup sort of grades out. Like they, top like top to bottom, like even the bottom third of the Mets lineup has been has been pretty productive. So like there's yeah, obviously they're not they don't catch the ball very well, but that that's you know putting that to the side, they they. They can score some runs, but they can almost afford to lose no starts that Jacob DeGrom makes like they did yesterday. Yeah. Um, especially against the Marlins, like you said, it just it just just kills you. And I still can't believe how bad Edwin Diaz is. Like, um, I, I that that's the one that really like <sighs> that's the one that would if I were you infuriate me the most. Like that's that's the one I think. Like obviously, like what I'm getting from the starters is is not adequate enough. But we're seeing teams piecemeal their rotations together this year in a year in which everyone's injured. But the Mets can't even do that. I needed whiskey before this conversation, Paul. This is uh, this is hitting hard here. Look at has there been a worse trade in the past five years? Because um, you remember, it's not just Edwin Diaz; it's Edwin Diaz and the right to pay 120 million to Robinson Cano. Yeah, I mean, uh, we might be talking about this one like Tris Speaker to the Indians, Babe Ruth to the Yankees, Tom Seaver, like we're. <laughs> Like this, this might go in that class if, if Jared Kellenic turns into, you know, Grady Sizemore yes. or, or Steve Finley or, or something like that. But that's, yes. Yeah. Keep in mind, though, like everyone, including myself, was flummoxed why the Mets uh, bothered buying at the deadline last year. And that club won 34 of the last 55 games. So right. that, isn't to say, that isn't to say that it mattered then because obviously they were so far gone that they had a long way to go. And it, didn't, it, did, it just didn't, didn't make up nearly as much of a difference. But perhaps – if, like we're talking about a really, really bad division here. Like we're talking, like the Marlins were the second team that I mentioned. So I suppose anything is within the realm. If if, if you win, you know, if you win, you know, Jacob Degrom's next six starts and and you know, and you can keep hitting without many holes in that lineup. You never know. That's why I think buying and you know without giving up, you know, really any future assets worthwhile might not have been the worst thing in the world for Brody. Who I mean, at this point, I think is sort of generally managing his job. Before we get off them, where are we sitting with this ownership situation? Have you heard? Have you had any guests on shows and things like that that have spoken to this a little bit? No, I can't. I can't help you much there. I, I, I my, my interest in this in that story um, sort of waxes and wanes, um, based, like, based on the fact that I just keep seeing the same people associated with it. And yeah. then there was like a Rod, and then it's like the same guy again. Like, I, I'm, I'm like, if this were the Phillies, I'd be obviously super interested. But like, the last thing I want to do ever is read about the Mets. And the last thing I want to be on that is read about buying the Mets. Like, I, like I, why? <laughs> like, I'm I'm going all in on Blockbuster um, immediately after I immediately after I buy the Mets. So that's where I stand. <laughs> I can't help you much there. All right, let's get out of the NL East. Last thing here before I let you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the Braves didn't make many moves. There were a couple of teams the Yankees didn't do anything in terms of bringing in you know help for uh, another injury battered season. My goodness. Uh, two players, maybe a couple more if you got them, uh, that weren't traded that you thought for sure were going to go. Oh, well, I mentioned one already, and that's Lance Lynn. I mean, this is I, – I, it's pretty stunning to say that, that he has produced more wins above replacement than any pitcher in baseball over the last two seasons. It's remarkable. Obviously, he's that's, – that's in part because he pitches in Texas. But he has the best fastball in baseball right now. He has a he, – he's, he's owed only $9 million for next year. As a Phillies fan, he was the only player – that I would be willing to break the bank for. And by break the bank, I mean pretty much anything that, that you want other than Boehm or Howard. So that really surprised me and I think was a major miss for the Rangers. The other is Josh Hader, who yeah. by, by, most, by most of these measures uh, ranks very highly in win probability added, obviously, over the last few seasons. He's been dominant in all three. He hasn't given up a hit this season. It's September 1st. This is a dominant pitcher with three more years of control. Now he's going to be expensive. It's sort of the Edwin Diaz experiment there. If you give up a lot to get him and he implodes or his release points a little bit off or, or, you know, his, you know, fastball velocity ticks down a little bit, but this is a genuinely dominant pitcher who I think is like he, if you, if you just look at the impact he has, on, on games from a win probability standpoint and how much he, like how well he pitches in high leverage late in games, late and close, like all that, all that stuff. Like we're talking about a, a top 10 or 15 contributor in baseball, given that value. And obviously the Brewers recognize that they weren't willing to move him. I didn't even hear all that much action, but he's a player that the Brewers should absolutely have traded in my judgment, because they're never going to pay him long-term even. And even if they're, um, even if they are good, the amount of assets you can get for them, both in, in the present and future, is very significant. Uh, the the Yankees 
got Weaver Torres for uh, for Aroldis Chapman, and that, like uh, with three years of control left for Josh Hader, I would have to think that a team may have been willing to give up a premium prospect. Maybe I don't, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe that's just the nature of baseball in 2020. Um, but I am all in on Josh Hader, and was as a Phillies fan somewhat surprised that he was not moved either. You mentioned the Yankees; that was the team that was linked to Hader pretty much the whole yeah. week, and. I know they're injured and I know, you know, their big bats are sitting down right now, but they're not willing to move Clint Frazier and Andujar and a couple of those top prospects to get a player like that who can absolutely take you over the top. Do they just not, do they feel like he would, you don't pay something like that for somebody who's going to be your eighth, eighth inning guy. Is that what the deal is? Potentially, but that's a very archaic way of thinking about it. If yes. so, because the eighth inning is often more important than the ninth as we, as we well know. And having, having those guys at your back end would be just filthy in the playoffs. Like you're playing a seven inning game the way the Royals did when they won the world series a couple of years ago, they, they even turned it into six. But in my judgment, like Josh, we're talking like Josh Hader is a valuable asset. Like the kind of person that like, I would rather have Josh Hader than like a league average regular as a second baseman. Like there's that much value in what he can provide. And with that much control left, I'm with you. The Yankees would have been, would, would have been, it would have been wise to at least strongly consider, you know, giving up some of their young players because the Yankees are all in on right now. They just are. And especially now, given the injuries, the rash of injuries that they had, trading some young players for three years of Josh Hader would have made all the sense in the world. This is not a two-month rental. Like this, the Cubs traded for Aralis Chapman for two months, and it worked. Like, we're talking about three more years. That's I, I thought that was uh, surprising at the very least. Well, as a Mets fan who has to watch Evan Diaz give up home runs in the ninth every every single night, I would say buyer beware. That's all I'm going to say about that. Cause that's exactly the situation we were in last year, and it was not pretty. So, Hemo, this was good stuff, man. You brought it today. I appreciate that very much. It's always good to hear your voice, and maybe we'll get a chance to to, to chat again before we hit the postseason. Uh, I, I'm I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying baseball every night as much as I ever have because of how much we missed it. And, uh, and look, I, I, who knows what the future of the sport's going to be? Who knows what free agency might look like, but I'm enjoying it for now. And we can, we can get into all that messiness later. Be good, man. We'll talk soon. Likewise. Bye-bye. All right. My thanks to Paul Hemikitas. Check him out on Twitter. I will certainly be making the rounds on that tomorrow with the podcast. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash Botrek for 40% off your first year subscription to Dynasty Owner, of course. It's fantasy football time. Visit dynastyowner.com. Get inside of a league. Tell them Spotrex sent you. Get a little extra. And please get the dacardwell.com. Check out their Hip Parade collection. Get yourself a mystery memorabilia box for Paul Hambakitis. My name is Mike Giannetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spotrex Podcast. <laughs>